But there are also, as we will see today, the crowds are with him and the crowds are always, sometimes people are asking questions or making criticisms and, and Jesus responds to those. Or there's the religious leaders who were out to kind of watch everything that he did to see, you know, if they could catch him out because they're really wanting to get rid of him by now. Uh, even halfway through Luke, uh, the, the, the focus is, is, is moving towards the cross. And do you remember the last cut two weeks ago, we thought about how Jesus told his disciples not to worry. And then last week, uh, he gave some good reasons why they needn't be uh, consumed by anxiety and worry. Last week, we saw actually, as Paul Robinson pointed out, that rather than worrying, it would be better that they were watchful. And uh, they, Jesus says to them, you should be like servants who, who want to please your master. And if you do that, it's going to be good for you as servants. It's going to, there's going to be some rewards of, involved. And he says, so don't be like servants who think, oh, the master's miles away. He's not looking. I'll abuse and beat up my fellow servants and give them a hard time. Or I'll, while the master's away, I might as well eat his food and drink his wine and get drunk and lose self-control. He said, no, don't do that. Instead, he says, you need to see yourselves as servants who have been entrusted with a great deal. And if you've been given a lot, he says, a lot is demanded of you. And we thought last week, didn't we, about how we're to be watchful, watching out for Jesus, not just that Jesus is going to return and we want to be ready for the day he will return and we don't know when that's going to be. could be any time. could be a long time off. We don't know. That's the whole point about it, as we saw last week. But as well as being watchful for the fact that Jesus could return at any time, we need also to be watchful for what Jesus might be doing in our lives, in our community, with the people that we're with. Because as Paul said, all this stuff Jesus talks about uh, servants to do is all very ordinary domestic stuff. And so we were challenged last week. I hope that brought that back to you. Because Jesus could be closer than we might think. We need to be watchful, looking out for what he's doing and how we can please him. Now let's read on in Luke 12 verse 49. And I want you to think about this. What Jesus says now, what has all that got to do with this stuff about being servants? What we thought about last week. Verse 49. I have come to bring fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo, and how distressed I am until it is completed. What's all that got to do with what Jesus has just been talking about? Well, Jesus is talking about why he has come, isn't he? A couple of times he says that. I have come, and you'll see it later on. This is why I've come. And as Jesus has been talking about the disciples being servants who've been given much and so much is demanded, I think his mind goes to his own role as the servant of God, as God who's come into the world with this huge task, this burden on him. Much has been given. And Jesus says, I'm not just talking to to, to you disciples as servants. I'm there too. I'm here in this place. He talks about why he's come. His role as a servant. He, He says here, I've been given a massive job to do. And he reflects upon what he's come to do 
and what's on his heart as he's aware of it. How he feels about this role, this job, this mission that he has. Look at what he says. What do you make about this? I have come to bring fire on the earth. Woo. (laughs) What's that about then? Now here's something. Think about the Old Testament. Those of you who know some Bible, oh, that's all right. I keep, keep, uh, know some Bible stories. Can you think of any Bible stories in the Old Testament that involve fire? Yeah, okay. Can we shout one out then? Sorry. The burning bush. You know that story? Moses is in, uh, you, you, know, you know that, even if you haven't read the Bible, but you'd seen either Charlton Heston or the Prince of Egypt or something like that in, in a movie. Yeah, Moses encounters God uh, as this bush is burning and it keeps on burning. Uh, and, and what's the significance of that? What, what's this, what does it mean? It means that God is there, the presence of God. Fire in the Old Testament was about the presence of God. Do you remember the Old Testament people when they went through the wilderness? What did they follow in the nighttime? What was it that stuck between them and the Egyptians when the Egyptians were after them? It was a pillar of fire. Do you remember when, when God came down on top of the mountain and gave them the Ten Commandments? What did people see? Fire, smoke. Earthquakes, you know, heavy stuff, you know. And, the, and it was a sign of God's presence, okay? That's one thing. I, I, good, good, glad you thought about that. I thought about that one as well. To bring fire on the earth, the sign of God's presence. Well, think about another, any other stories in the Old Testament that involve fire? Daniel? Yeah, Daniel was, uh, well, his friends were thrown into the fiery furnace and God was in the middle. So it's kind of fire of persecution, I suppose that could be. I was thinking of something else, though. Elijah. Yeah, let's go with Elijah. Remember what happened to Elijah? Fire came down from heaven on the sacrifice that Elijah put up, wasn't it? And uh, that was the sign of God's accepting the sacrifice of Elijah. Uh, uh, instead of the prophets of Baal, all these, there were all these foreign prophets around. We won't go into the details, but you can check out the story in 1 Kings if you want to. But the key thing is, fire was the sign of God's accepting of that sacrifice. And do you remember what the people said after the fire came down? The Lord, he is God. It was a sign that, that, that in a sense, the vindication of Elijah, that, that God had come down or, or God's presence had been kind of touched the earth at that point, And that sacrifice was, woof, you know, consumed, including all the water that was all over it. Great story. No time to go into it now. It might be on the web, actually. We did it in here at Portswood about four, three or four years ago. So that was a sign um, of uh, God's acceptance. Because I was thinking of another story in the Old Testament, or more than one actually, involves fire. We probably don't like to think about these kind of stories too much, actually. Someone want to say? Hell? Yeah, I suppose the fire of God's judgment. I was thinking, do you know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah? What happens? Fire consumes them. It's another time when, when there was a big rebellion, wasn't there? I think Korah's rebellion in, in Moses' time. And again, the fire of God uh, kind of came down. So we've got, in the Old Testament, what does fire from God mean? It's a sign of God's presence. It's an act of God's judgment on occasions. God's uh, uh, holiness against what's wrong. 
And it's about God accepting a sacrifice. Now, what is Jesus talking about here? Let's go back to what Jesus said. Verse 50 might give us a bit more of a clue. But I have a baptism to undergo. What's that about? Well, you might remember that on a number of occasions, Jesus talked about going to the cross and suffering as a baptism that he had to do. Jesus is surely thinking about the cross here. He's thinking about, and this is a good thing for us to be thinking about, a week away from Palm Sunday and Easter week. He's thinking of the cross. Do you remember this section begins right uh, a few weeks ago now? Uh, This section of Luke's gospel, this second half begins with, it says, Jesus set his face as a flint. He, He was absolutely kind of locked in that he was heading towards Jerusalem And what was going to happen at Jerusalem uh, when he died on the cross? It's the way he's going. And he says, I'm longing to see that done. He says in verse, see there, verse 50, how distressed I am until it is completed. It has this sense of, he says, I'm stressed about it. It's a big thing for me. It's, it's, it's the massive event. It's what my whole life is about, says Jesus. And, and that's the direction I'm going on. I must do this, says Jesus. It's the main thing. So let's think about the cross for a moment. Let's think about what Jesus means. What, what Jesus perhaps has in mind. And you can follow this through in these readings in, in the little booklet next week if you want to or the week after. What happened at the cross? God is there. God's presence is there. God himself. It says in 2 Corinthians 5, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. God is there at the cross. Uh, In the uh, the heart of the greatest, as you'll read in the book, because I've I've stressed it on one of the stations of the cross, just stresses the incredible injustice that Jesus goes through. Uh, he, at one point, as you'll see in, in Luke's gospel in the book, he, he, he's in the hands of Pilate and Herod. And these two are responsible for the most sophisticated and actually the, um, the best justice system that the world has probably seen up until that point. And both of them just say, the crowd can have him. It says in Luke's gospel, Pilate handed him over to the crowd. The greatest injustice ever suffered by any person at any time was, was, was kind of taken by Jesus. And God is there in the heart of it, in Christ, God's presence. What about this act of God's judgment at the cross? The fire of God's judgment falls on Jesus. And again, you'll see it in in the passages as we think about what happened at the cross. You know, when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's this kind of, the, the relationship of love that brought the universe into being. The love of the Father to the Son with the Spirit in that community of the Godhead, or that, that, that loving, close relationship, at that point is snapped, it's broken in two. 
as the fire of God's judgment falls on Jesus, as God himself takes all the consequences of our sin, our rebellion, our injustice, our sickness, all the bad stuff about our world goes into Jesus in three hours on that cross. And God's fire comes down. And Jesus is overwhelmed by the sin of the world. I've come to bring fire on the earth. The fire of God's judgment comes down onto Jesus so we can be forgiven. And at the cross, God accepts the sacrifice. The temple curtain, you know, that kept people away from God's presence is ripped into. The Roman centurion, again, as you'll read, if you read the booklet, the Roman centurion says, surely this was the son of God. But well, he doesn't say surely this was just like that. He's not make, passing an opinion. He's not making a forensic comment. Luke says he praised God. This Roman centurion who'd watched Jesus died, who'd pro- probably got a message, I don't know, maybe that the temple curtain was in half. This Roman man, this, 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 this soldier saw that God was there. And he worshipped at the cross. The cross. It's a decisive event. It's the heart of what Jesus came to do. And Jesus is saying to the people on the road, this event is coming. I'm God's servant. I'm heading in this direction, he says. I'm under a pressure. I'm constrained. There's nothing I can do but go in that direction. And you again see this. And that whole kind of dynamic goes on through till he's in Gethsemane in the garden. And he's sweating blood as he he faces it. Under pressure. Friends, guys, brothers and sisters, whatever the right word to say is, there is no Christ without the cross. There is no Christianity without the cross. There is no following Jesus without the cross touching our lives. And there's no rescue without the cross. Because Jesus came to bring the fire of God's presence, God's judgment, God's acceptance of that sacrifice. And he is going to do it as he writes, as he speaks here. And we know looking back, he has done it. And we live under it. And the impact says Jesus is massive. Look at what he says, 51 to 53. Tough words. Do you think I came to bring peace on the earth? No, I tell you, but division. From now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter-in-law against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. What's Jesus saying? What's all that about? Well, he, because this event is so massive, Jesus says there are implications. This is how much it matters to God, what he did on the cross. This is how important our response is. So Jesus is saying it's not something we can be neutral about in that sense. It isn't something we, Jesus is going to inspire and draw out our loyalty Because of what he will do on the cross. And what does that tell us about how important he is? How important what he's done on the cross is? Again, think about that as we approach Easter. 
It's a decisive event, and it calls for a decision from each of us. And it's a decision with great implications. And as Jesus is saying here, implications for our relationships. And it's not that Jesus is saying, you know, I'm going to come in and split families, and, you know, know, it'll be me instead of your family, and you'll have to leave your family, and your family will break up and all of that. That's not what he's saying at all. What he is saying is that our loyalty to Jesus, because of what he's done, is the key thing. It's the most important thing in our lives. And he's saying that that loyalty to Jesus is at the heart for us. He is number one. Now, as number one in our lives, he will help us with all the others. And I know some of you may have got, maybe not yet believers, and you've got family who are or who were, and you will uh, maybe know that, Their loyalty to Jesus hasn't made them any less loyal to you in your family or your relationship. You will know that. But there can be painful times when the loyalty to Jesus can can be hard because it kind of splits us. We're either loyal to him or we're not. And, And in a sense, what kind of holds us together is maybe not as strong as what holds us to Jesus. That doesn't mean, as I say, that he smashes up families, all that kind of thing, quite the reverse. But it is about the loyalty to him. And then Jesus talks to the crowd. Let's look at verse 54 to 59. He said to the crowd, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say, it's going to rain, and it does. And when the south wind blows, you say, it's going to be hot, and it is. Hypocrites. He says, you play acting. You know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky. How is it that you don't know how to interpret this present time? Why don't you judge for yourselves what is right? As you are going with your adversary to the magistrate, try hard to be reconciled to him on the way. Or he may drag you off to the judge, and the judge turn you over to the officer, and the officer throw you into prison. I tell you, he's saying, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. It's the tiniest little currency at the time what's he talking about there well jesus is talking to the crowd now and he's been talking about this massive event this decisive event the cross actually jesus death on the cross is going to have a huge impact on jerusalem it's going to have a huge impact on palestine it's going to change the history of their nation uh, as as history is actually revealed by ad 70 the romans came in and smashed the whole place to pieces And Jesus sees that as a kind of direct kind of link with their rejection of the Messiah, him. And Jesus is saying now to the crowds, you need to read it right. He says, you can can tell what the weather's going to be like. For goodness sake, you know, if there's there's a wind from the south, you know it's going to be hot. If there's a cloud, you know it's going to rain. But what he, she said, he says, why can't you see how important the time that you're living in is? How important this event, this cross event that he's going towards, how, how key and how crucial that is. Jesus says to the crowds, why can't you see that? Because they can't see it or they won't see it. And then he gives this story about the, if you're on your way to the magistrate, it's better if you settle out of court is basically the idea. And we know that, don't we, even now? You know, if, for example, well, even now, I got a fine, I must confess to you. Uh, I got a fine in Waitrose. Um, this, it was on a Sunday. Anyone been fined on a Sunday in Waitrose? 
I've got this theory. Do they book us on Sundays or not? Anyway, one day I'll park my car and see what happens. And we can share out the cost, can't we, between us? <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so I, I got it. if you get a fight in Waitrose, like other car parks around the city, I've had a few, not only two or three, but anyway. Uh, uh, if you pay straight away, you get it half price. And it's a bit like, you know, if you settle out of court, it's better for you. And Jesus is saying to these people at the time, he's saying, look, he's saying, settle out of court. See what's happening. See how important the cross is. And get yourself right with God now. You know, uh, the Titanic, when it left Southampton, it sailed to Cherbourg. And then it went to Queenstown in Ireland, in the Republic of Ireland, in County Cork. Eight people got off. At Queenstown. Some, well, they had tickets. I think uh, I did a little tiny bit of research. And I think most of them had tickets to Queenstown. But there was one guy. He was a fireman. Who just got off the ship. Decided he didn't want to carry on. And the kind of story is. I don't know whether it's true or not. He had a sense of foreboding. But if you look at the research. Um, he actually came from Queenstown. <laughs> so it could be that he got to Queenstown. And thought oh stuff this. I might as well see my friends. You know and spend a week or two here. Because he then went on to continue working on the White Star Line. Other uh, liners. And actually I think he got shipwrecked off Hull at one point. was rescued. There's a record of this guy in about the 1950s being rescued. Uh, anyway that's a detail. The point is. You could, if you, the, the man, that fireman, whether he got off with a sense of foreboding or whether he just wanted to see his family, he got off before the Titanic hit the iceberg. And that's what Jesus is saying to the people here, saying, look, guys, you can get off. You can get off. He's saying to the people of Israel, there are consequences of rejecting him. You need to be reading the time. You need to respond now. To these decisive events, he's saying, you need to read it right. And to us, perhaps we forget, I think we do forget actually, uh, as evangelicals sometimes, because we're so much into a privatized kind of faith. Nothing wrong with that, but it's not all there is, that's the point. We sometimes forget that there are consequences to human actions on the big scale of history. God is at work in this bigger picture Is there anything in the Bible that says that God uh, used to intervene in the Old Testament way when he raised up Cyrus and people were moved around and things? Is there anything in the Bible that says he stopped working like that? don't think there is, actually. That there are still big implications of human activity, human sin, actually, human rebellion. And we just don't see it because our culture doesn't see it. Because we're too busy worshipping the economy and sex and all the other stuff that our culture worships. But Jesus says to us, read it right. Watch, see that God is at work and respond to it. How will we respond to the decisive event of the cross and to what God is doing in our world as people reject him and his ways? Let's move on. Let's go to chapter 13, verses 1 to 5. Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. 
Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will perish. Jesus talks to some of them who bring up an issue about reading it wrong. It's so easy to read things wrong. And they mention this terrible atrocity that Pilate, the governor, had committed. He'd obviously, uh, when some Galileans were actually making their sacrifices, that would have been a Passover event because that was the only time you could kind of sacrifice, make your own sacrifice as an Israelite. And at some point, Galilee was a hotbed of um, uh, insurrection. That's why Jesus was such a suspect character because right up in the north of, um, of Palestine, right on the borders, uh, and people from Galilee weren't trusted. And Pilate had obviously decided to make a statement and he murdered a bunch of Galileans who were sacrificing, making their sacrifices. And as Jesus said, the blood of the people mingled with the blood of the sacrifice. It was a terrible atrocity, a ghastly, awful thing. And it's as if there are people around who, are, who respond to Jesus and trying to read the size, signs rather, and coming, come up with the idea that these Galileans suffered the atrocity because they were sinners in some way. They were worse than everybody else. And that was the answer. And Jesus emphatically says, no, that's wrong. You've come up with an answer. You've tried to read the signs, but you've read it completely wrong. These people aren't worse than anyone else. He says, look, guys, the problem of sin is not with some people who suffer sickness or some people who get involved in atrocities. It's a problem for all of us. That's what Jesus is saying. And he goes on. uh, He says, look, we're, we're no worse than each other, really, if we're honest. And then he mentions a terrible accident when a tower in Jerusalem fell on people. And again, that would have, everyone would have known about that in the culture at the time. 18 people were killed when this scaffolding or this tower fell down or, you know, slightly dodgy builders or, or whatever it was. And Jesus says the same thing. Those people didn't die because they were more sinful than anyone else. We're all in the same boat. And Jesus' point is that we all need to read ourselves and realize that we all need to change. Whether we hit particular trouble or not, whether our life is difficult or or, or easy, whether we sail sweetly through life never having to suffer anything at all, or whether terrible things happen to us. Jesus is saying... That's got nothing to do with our personal sin because we're all in the same boat. Jesus is saying trouble is just how the world works. It most of the time doesn't have anything to do specifically with what we have done personally. A few things can, can, obviously, but, but generally, Jesus says that's not how the world works. Don't read it that way. Instead, he says, we need to repent. He says that twice, did you notice? And he's saying to the people around, look, don't, you know, <laughs> you're reading it wrong that some people are worse than others and you know, they suffer because of that. Jesus is saying, no, we all need, you all need to repent. To come to God, to ask his help. Repentance simply means to change your mind, to head in a different direction. Not to change your mind in just, you know, oh, I've changed my mind about that idea. But that kind of the way the world works, I'm going to go in a different direction now. We can repent. So don't read it wrong. Don't think that evil is to do with other people. (laughs) We're in it together. We are all capable of great evil. None of us are immune to that. 
None of us knows what we are capable of if the right buttons were pushed or were in the certain circumstance. And Jesus' point is we're all there. And so we, we mustn't read it that you know, some are worse than others and therefore they suffer. But we must realize the world works that way, but God calls us to change and to go in his direction to repent. And there is something that will happen to Israel. There will be terrible consequences of their rejection of Jesus. As I say, they were already looking for a way to kill him. But Jesus is saying there's a way through that. It's possible, in one sense, to get off the Titanic before it hits the iceberg. We can repent. The cross can show us why. The cross shows us how. The cross gives us the way back into a right relationship with God. It's all there in those events at the cross. Not that it's the wooden cross, but it's what Jesus is doing on the cross for us. How God is in Christ reconciling the world to himself. So don't read it wrong. Don't think it's all about other people's sins. Repent. Let's each of us start a change process with God. There's a new place with him for all who repent, says Jesus. And then finally he tells them a story. Let's have this story. (laughs) This is what you might call reading it differently. Again, think about all that. Go back to the beginning. Think about all Jesus has been saying. He kind of sums it up with his final parable. Then he told them a parable, verse 6. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, For three years now I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Literally, it's a waste of space. Shouldn't be there. Sir, the man, that's the man who looked after the tree, replied, leave it alone for one more year. And I'll dig round it and fertilize it. Actually, it says I'll put manure in it. It's quite earthy in the original. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then okay, cut it down. So it's a pretty obvious story. They often, uh, apparently, fig trees are quite good for vineyards. They help. I don't know what they do. There's some kind of symbiotic relationship between the fig and the vine, which means that you get better grapes if you've got fig trees in your vineyard. Um, if you're into that, you'll know. But uh, that's what often happened. But he did want figs from his fig tree. All he wanted was a few figs, I suppose, to make a few biscuits, fig rolls, or some figgy pudding, or whatever it was. And, and every year he came looking for his figs, and there weren't any. So he has a conversation with the gardener, and you read the conversation. What's that about? Well, remember what Jesus said at the beginning at wanting to complete the task? Yeah, you know, I'm constrained to do it. I've got to go on to the cross. So, you know, even though this is going to bring division on people, or even though the fire of God's kind of judgment, as well as God's presence and, and acceptance of the sacrifice, is going to fall on the earth, I've got to keep going. I must do that. Here, in a way, it's a slightly different perspective because here's a story in which a, a tree that's already been useless for three years is given yet one more year. To bear fruit. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, but he's not there yet. And he's saying something, isn't he? It was 37 years between the death of Jesus and the arrival of Roman, the Roman troops outside Jerusalem. 37 years that, that the nation of Israel had an opportunity to turn and trust their Messiah because he was raised from the dead. 
it's a picture of God's patience, isn't it? Why God waiting for fruit. God wanting people to repent. He's already given three years, but he's willing to give more. I was talking to somebody on Friday, nobody here, but somebody I know very well indeed, um, about his bit about his life and stuff, and um, he's had some tough times. He's saying that we need to understand the difference between grace and mercy. There's graces in that three years of waiting. He can talk, look at his life and see God's grace, but he says there are other things in which God has just been overwhelmingly merciful and given him more than even, as it were, grace he didn't deserve in grace. But even more. And here's the picture of, of grace is the three years. Mercy is saying, I'll give it another year. Let's put some manure in. Let's, let's look after it. Let's try and get it to bear fruit. What a picture of God's mercy, God's love. And Jesus is going to the cross. It will open the way for repentance. It will open the way for restoration of our relationship with God. But if that doesn't happen, there's nothing but judgment. God wants us to repent. He doesn't want anyone to perish. He gives us more time. He keeps inviting us back. He says, when will we respond? So let me finish with a couple of questions. What does God look like in this passage? Jesus willing to embrace the cross, longing for people to repent, wanting to people, wanting us to see that we're all in the same boat, wanting the tree so much to bear fruit, pleading for extra time, even though he's also constrained to go because the fire of God's judgment is, is going to fall on him. The cross, it all comes out of the cross. And so what will our decision be? Are we going to ignore him? Are we going to ignore the signs? Are we going to forget being fruitful? It doesn't matter, we might think. No need to change, no need to turn to God. Are we going to be like that? Or are we going to make the decision to repent? To be fruitful? To follow this Jesus as he heads out towards the cross? To realize that the mission he's on is for me, for you. And welcome the fruit of that event, that cross event, into my life, into your life. As I repent, as I turn, and as I trust him. Repentance is mentioned twice here. It's interesting if uh, the the experts uh, kind of analyze the Greek used, and actually there are two ways it's used. First of all, when Jesus says, unless you repent, you'll perish, it has the idea of a one-off thing. You have to decisively say, I'm going to turn around, and I'm going to start going. But then on the second time it's used, it's uh, as a repeated event, a first step, if you like, that lives, that, that lives out into the future, the first step of a walk of repentance. You know, you take a step, that's an important step. If you don't take the step, you don't go anywhere, do you? A, come, a point comes, well, I'm going to take a step. But actually, the step needs to be ongoing. Another step, another step. I'm going to fall off the side in a minute. Repentance. That, and maybe some of us need to, to come for the first time and say, God, I want to turn. I want that, your change in my life. I want to begin this change process with you because of the cross. Others of us maybe have kind of gone like that, like that, and now we're like that. We need to take more steps as we follow Christ in his direction. Let's bow our heads and pray, and then we'll respond.